The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So a warm welcome to Neil Ryland, part of the uh, leadership team at uh, Picon. Now, Neil believes all leaders need to make believe the impossible is possible. We'll hear a little bit more about that later in in this conversation. So uh, some background on Picon. Picon funded by EQT Ventures, Sunstone Capital, ID Invest and Tommy Arles provides a SaaS platform to help companies maximize their employee engagement, retention and productivity. And prior to Picon, Neil was the Chief Revenue Officer at Huddle, one of Britain's most successful VC-funded enterprise software ventures. Uh, Neil relocated to uh, San Francisco to spearhead Huddle's US market strategy. Uh, And Neil's also an investor and advisor at Incubus LDN, which develops young entrepreneurs to build high-tech or high-growth tech startups. So, uh, So Neil, I'm delighted to welcome you onto today's show. Cool, and thanks so much for the kind intro, Gary. It's uh, great to be part of the podcast with you. You're you're very welcome, Neil. So uh, let's begin with a trek down memory lane. Uh, Tell us a little about your early career after graduation and how you got involved in the world of uh, technology startups. Yeah, sure. It feels like a long time ago now. I definitely had a lot more hair. Um, So after I graduated, my degree actually is in, in sports science. So yeah, the argument is I've got a degree in catching, so not really because the, the, the typical degree you'd expect from someone that ends up in a, in a sales and startup environment. But actually where the passion comes from is that I'd kind of made a go at trying to start my own personal training business. Um, I come from a family of serial entrepreneurs. Uh, my dad had uh, three cracks at it before he made one work uh, back, in, back in sleepy Suffolk. So I kind of always had a passion for understanding what makes businesses tick. Um, what makes people want to do the right thing at work? Because I've so many people that don't like what they do, didn't like their degree, all these things. Um, but having uh, struggled to build a personal training business for a complete lack of confidence to approach people in, the, in, in a gym and say, hey, do you want to train with me? Uh, I kind of found myself needing a lot of money to, to make sure I didn't have to head back to Suffolk from London, kind of with my uh, tail between my legs. Um, and uh, got lucky and found a recruitment company called Crato Law. Uh, and then was placed into an organization called CapScan. Um, went through the kind of typical hard school and Ox sales process, cold calling, $100 a day, but had some good mentors and good managers. Um, and that company actually was successfully acquired by GB Group. Uh, and during my time there of getting myself into kind of a quota carrying sales role, uh, I saw the value in kind of going out and networking and meeting lots of different people. Again, just kind of inspired around what we'd launched as kind of the first online postcode lookup tool, which seems crazy to say now that uh, I was part of that. I definitely feel old now. Um, but, you know, it was the first time that you could go onto a website and real-time search postcode and bring back the rest of an address. Uh, and the fact that we'd done that versus sending out CDs for updated address lists made me realize that there's so much power that technology can bring to changing the way that people work, as corny as that sounds. Uh, and then was fortunate enough to to meet Ali and Andy, who are the co-founders of Huddle. Um, I kind of started my, my kind of journey in the startup world uh, with those guys in the basement in Bermondsey Street in London uh, just over 10 years ago now. 
<laughs> showing your age on a, on a few occasions there, there Neil. I know, it's scary. <laughs> How important do you think it was that, that you came from a, a family of serial entrepreneurs? I think it's huge, probably subconsciously at the time. Um, I think then as you kind of get older and definitely when you step into a leadership role, you you start to create these correlations between what you saw as a perhaps as a child and then a teenager and then at university around some of the things that you know my my dad did and how he he built companies he kind of led from the front his um his actual business that was was successful uh, in the end was a traffic management company so I was putting cones out on the road uh, and I remember him saying to me well the reason I picked that is for the least as long as I can see for my lifetime there's always going to be cars there's always going to be roads so therefore there's a need for it. So this idea, again, around picking a product that truly solves a problem, uh, kind of subconsciously installed in my mind. Um, but then he also um, was doing it himself. You know, he, he, would, he wasn't afraid of the work. You know, he'd be out there putting the cones out himself at the same time, sat back at home doing the books and talking around why he wanted to do it and his passion for doing it. So I think, yes, definitely it's had a huge influence on why I love being part of building something because I kind of grew up around that environment. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the family influences can can really make a big difference on our on our career choices, indeed. So, within two years of joining Huddle, you jetted off to San Francisco to launch the U.S. office. Um, there's been quite a lot of talk recently about uh, this concept of imposter syndrome, uh, a sense that many people yeah. have that they didn't truly deserve the success they were having in their career. Uh, so I was wondering, how confident were you in your ability when you first launched the US business? Um, yeah, I, I think actually it's, it's a really interesting point. I did a couple of talks actually on imposter syndrome and a blog on it because it's definitely something that I felt and I, I still feel at times. Um, but yeah, I think as a, as a business, when we were going out there, I almost think we couldn't believe our, our kind of fortune if you like you know, we just raised an amazing b round uh with matrix partners uh leading it a brilliant bc joining our board um and i've gone through like an internal interview process and based on numbers suddenly they're like right that's it you know in three months you'll be living in san francisco with with andy our co-founder and one of my other colleagues uh to go and build out this this new company you know on the west coast of america um so no i i definitely felt that and i think um a, a key part of that um, not to come on a tangent, but overcoming that that syndrome and finding what you're doing is one always being humble. It's not a bad thing to to feel like you've still got a lot to learn, but having great mentors around you that support you when you're bouncing ideas around and you think about how would you make this successful, what would you do, um, helps me a lot in that initial transition of kind of moving you know, five thousand miles around the world uh, and eight hours out of sync of everything I'd I kind of known previously. You mentioned mentors just now. Were your mentors within the company you know, the founders and other senior execs maybe the investors from matrix or were they um individuals from outside that immediate network so they're people actually from outside and then i mean i was still relatively early in my my career at that stage kind of like kind of five years experience um in kind of the sales world and you know arguably only three years in SaaS, but it's a relatively kind of newish concept back then um, so my mentors is one of my old lecturers from university. Um, and then the other person that was my boss's boss uh, from, from CapScan, who, you know, we kind of had a, both had a shared love of rugby. Uh, and so I took the time to make sure that I, you know, kept to abreast of some of the, the opportunities I was working, some of the things I was doing outside of work. 
Uh, and actually, still a mentor today, Dave Mead, who's um, been a huge help in my career uh, right from the early days. Interesting you should mention rugby there. It's incredible how many successful technology salespeople and sales leaders seem to have a passion for rugby or have even played rugby um, uh, for a number of years. Have you, is that something that you've come across as well? I think I think generally I'm not, I'm not sure it's always linked to, to to rugby. I think sometimes there's an element of people that have played sport at a competitive level for a long period of time tend to thrive in in these kind of environments where you know if you don't do it, someone else will. You know, if, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? All those things are so relevant when you played competitive sport, um, and you've also then been part of a team where you know you can't win on necessarily win on your own, and that. Even on individual sports, like a tennis player, you know, you've got coaches around you that help you. Um, so I, I definitely see it. And even when I look at my hiring kind of strategy and process we put in place, uh, one of the anagrams that I use for like the core traits of what I look for in successful people in startups, not just in sales, is uh, loyalty, attitude, and tenacity. So anagrams lap. Um, and the reason I say those three things, the three things that you know, either through my mentors or my time in hiring, I don't think I can coach those things. I don't think you can coach someone to be loyal. Um, I don't know if you're going to be married for 10 years. There's been people that say they're going to do something and they find a way to do it. You know, plan A doesn't work. There's 26 letters in the alphabet, right? Keep going. Um, that uh, can-do attitude. You know, you need a positive can-do attitude. Uh, and then tenacity, you know, that insatiable appetite for winning. You know, that's what drives you. You want that feeling. You want other people to have that feeling. Um, so I think you, you do naturally get that in people that have played played sport, um, albeit a slight generalisation. But again, if I look at a lot of the teams that we've kind of built and definitely the team we've built here at Pecon, a lot of the guys have, uh, have played sport, are still playing sport at a competitive level. Yeah, it's certainly something I've noticed in, in the more successful people we've interviewed over the years. Okay, um, latching mm. on to that point of tenacity, um, I'm sure that was a factor in huddles um eventually successful u.s strategy because initially your strategy in the states was not a success so why was that and what lessons did you learn yeah definitely i think i think part of it come back to your point a little bit the the imposter syndrome maybe with an element of truth in it and that you know we'd we'd built a really amazing um business and team in the uk um we had a strong foothold in UK government, um, an element of luck in that you know, we had UK servers and there's just this talk on like cyber security, all these things start to come in and the importance of where you host your data. So a lot of things in the market, uh, macro level played very well for our business in the UK. Um, and I think we, we then took just a blueprint from the UK and tried to place that straight into the US. Uh, and we found it very challenging. I think we didn't do our SWOT analysis well enough on some of the competition and uh, where they were present. Um, I don't think as a business we've truly been able to identify what our buyer profile looked like and core markets where we thought we could go and get our quick wins and build success. Um, I don't think we'd necessarily thought a lot around some of the things you need to do around localization. I think that's a common mistake people, people make is they don't think around the, the things that really start to impact you, you know, your terms of use. Um, it sounds like a Oh, what we need to work. Yes, you do. You know, these are the things that hold up deals and the things that your competitors that are based locally will be able to do straight off the bat. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of lessons that we learn around how do you start something brand new. And the advice I gave to them is you almost need to treat it like it's a new business, like you're starting up in the US. 
uh, or in Germany, as we're doing here in Pecon now, um, and APAC actually in Auckland. Um, and yes, you can draw from best practices, and there's some things that I think we did do well around how we maintained the culture. But in terms of our market analysis for how we got our quick wins and started getting the, the hockey stick growth that had in the UK replicated, um, we weren't able to do that successfully in our initial advance into the US. And those lessons learned uh, from uh, from Huddle are proving valuable at peak on now as you uh, as you start to scale globally. Uh, definitely, I think no one's uh, no no one's got this kind of nailed down and perfect because uh, I think there are some things around you know the timing in the market generally and the product that you're selling, um, but. I think from a management team and the process and plan that we're putting in place, um, we're definitely taking some of the lessons that we've learned from from doing it previously and applying them now to reduce the risk of it not being as successful. Um, and that, that, again, I think a, a key part of that strategy is around hiring. And I kind of get asked a lot around, like, what's the hiring plan? How are we going to do this? The conversation happens with the board quite regularly. Um, and uh, what we did do well at Huddle was making sure that we took one of the management team over with with the team to, to start this new office because uh, one of the hard things when you start to scale a startup that's probably been successful in its local market is you probably have an amazing culture where everyone is friends everyone knows each other you know the right folder to go to to get information all those things when you start the business they don't have any of that um, so being able to take that almost like put it in a jar put a lid on it and travel it across the Atlantic and then open it again when you get into your new office it's crucial in you being able to hire the top talent. It's crucial in the success of ramping those new people into the business. And most importantly, making them feel like they're part of a company and not just the satellite office or, you know, kind of the, the ugly stepchild of what's been a successful company in the local market. So you're a big believer in the idea of of spreading the culture internationally through having one of the um, founders, one of the very top execs in the company lead the new international office when you set it up. Yeah, definitely. And I think from experience, you know, again, hindsight's always 2020, but we in San Francisco, we did do that bit very well. Uh, we then opened up in New York. Um, so we kind of went kind of big bang in San Francisco, had to downsize it while we kind of rethought our strategy because it wasn't as successful as what, you know, we, we, we'd all hoped. Um, and when we came back to New York, one of the things then we probably didn't look at the lesson learned of what went well was we didn't move one of the, the co-founders out into New York. Um, and probably ended up treating New York, bizarrely, as almost like a flyover state because we had kind of this office in San Francisco, an office in London, but because none of the management team were based in New York, like board meetings were always hosted in San Francisco or London. Um, and that doesn't, doesn't help people that are joining what was a kind of remote office in New York to feel part of the, the greater being of what we were trying to accomplish at Huddle. And I think that's a key part of why people join startups. You know, they, they want to build and they want to disrupt something. They want to do something different and they want to have you know, the millennial terms here, you know, make an impact. I think it's very hard to know whether you're doing that or not if you don't have the leadership team around you inspiring you and why we why we started the company in the first place. So yeah. I've kind of done it both ways where it's worked and then when I, we didn't do it uh, and the challenges that we had in doing that with our New York office. <laughs> Clearly, uh, always learning, learning those lessons and tweaking tweaking as you go, go along. Um, and uh, when we last spoke, um, one of the, phrases that you came up with um, was start up, grow up, scale up, a lovely way of describing um, the different phases of, of a company's evolution. So how did you come up with that phrase and uh, how do you define and differentiate between 
those three stages? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the first part, how did I kind of figure it out? I, I think I figured it out mainly by the people that we were hiring into the business and the impact that it had on what I would kind of coin as original huddlers and then new huddlers. Um, and you can end up with these kind of two little micro cultures that exist within the business. Um, so I define like the startup phase is almost the, you have an idea um, and it's a group of very, very closely knitted people that kind of do everything. Yes, you have a functional role uh, in terms of where your priority is, but everyone is involved in everything. And, and it's all around literally, can, can we actually prove that this is even an idea? Like would people spend money on this? And that creates such a plethora of jobs that you do as a business. You know, you're not even thinking about your office environment. You're not thinking about salaries. All it is is the, the big dream. Imagine what could happen if we did this. And it's a lot of A-B testing. Um, and then when you find you have that proof point, and there's kind of lots of, we listed lots of the different podcasts on SaaS, et cetera, and what that proof point of product market fears, whether it's linked to like revenue numbers, um, and like sometimes like some of the renewal rates early on. Um, but that next phase for me was defined when we started to put a structure in place of actually, do you know what? The workload now for individuals is too much and we're, we're not able to actually maximize and serve our clients in the way that we'd want to. You start to deal with troubleshooting, which you've kind of never had before from customers, but if you didn't have any, um, you suddenly realize that you need someone to take responsibility and you need an element of accountability outside of yourself in this kind of grow up phase. Suddenly now people have spent money on your business and you do have much more larger bills to pay. Um, you have terms of use that you've kind of agreed to with customers. So suddenly you have to go through the stage of we need to grow up. We need to bring people in that are actually experts and have experience of doing these kind of functional roles. And that can put people's noses out of place because the guy that started it, you know, your, your only sales guy suddenly has a sales leader boss when they thought maybe I would be the sales leader. So there's an element of now you have to show maturity as the people that are in the business from the beginning in order to create a framework for what could be an organization to our kind of point earlier that could go and repeat this in a new market. Um, so that for me is this kind of grow up phase. And I think actually that's the hardest one to go through um, because it's pulling a lot of people sometimes kicking and screaming away from what was their comfortable environment of the true, you know, the startup with the dog walk around the office and all those things that people associate with, you know, the small kind of uh, startup scene and then the scale up is is for me when you're you know you're probably 10 million ARR stage and it's like okay we're we're now an established business you know all the things that we have put in place now should be optimized and you can tweak any element of the business to change results um, across the organization um, and that's you know the argument you're kind of you're definitely post your B round and you're, you're on track for wherever the next junction in your businesses whether it's raising more money whether it's you know, finding a happy home inside another larger organization but your processes have been well defined your company structure has been defined and it becomes much much easier to create a very clear repeatable process um, and we're actually in that you know, from from pecan's perspective we're, we're now at the very uh, beginning stage of the grow up journey um, having kind of gone through a phenomenal startup growth phase in kind of 2016 and, and, and 2017 I really have to adopt that phrase, might even uh, uh, rename the podcast uh, if you haven't already patented <laughs> <laughs> patented that. Um, so what do you look for in terms of the unique characteristics that define successful sales and biz dev talent for each of those three phases? Yeah, definitely. I, I think for the, for, the, for the startup stage in particular, 
Um, for me, what I'm, I'm the only thing I'm really looking at is those, those three initial traits I talk through: this kind of loyalty, attitude, and tenacity, um, and people that are not afraid to give something a chance. And I think if if you're hiring at this stage on the salespeople that are are hungry for the money, that are hungry on the commission plans, that you often can get it wrong because they don't have all the resources. And I have a saying whenever I interview anyone, which is the honesty policy. It all sounds like a crazy thing because you just expect people to be honest. But we have this very weird interview dance that we always do where we kind of, for some reason, try and big up that sometimes we want jobs we don't necessarily want or we exaggerate CVs and people exaggerate their companies. And as you all that ends up happening in six months down the line, the truth comes out and you don't really drive a very uh, a high level of engagement or trust across your organization. So I adopt this kind of honesty policy of what it's really like when you come into a startup. You know, it's at that stage, is it is it nine five? No, it could be any time of the day, but you've got to see this not as a job, but as as, as an opportunity that's part of your life. You know, and that's for me, you know, come back to that tenacious appetite to win, positive can do attitude. This is your opportunity to have something on your C V that very, very few people in the world will have. You know, but in a few years' time, you could have been part of something that everyone in the world then knows about but wasn't part of. And if that's the thing that gets you really excited, um, I think you do well in that kind of early stage startup company. But you've got to find something that you're passionate around, you know, whether it's the technology, the market, the buyers, the problem that it's solving, something that really makes you um, resonate with, with the organization. <clears throat> so that, to me, is a big question. Then when you go into the grow-up stage, that's, to me, where kind of some of the CV experience starts to come in. You know, you're looking for people that can bring to the table a little bit kind of like, you know, having the adult in the room, if you like. You know, someone that comes in and goes, okay, this is how we've kind of been there, done that before. And they bring something fresh to the table. Uh, and it's often some some form of kind of structure uh, and organization around processes within your business. Because there's not a huge amount of processes in startups. You know, I think that's the element is you find a way. You know, you just, sometimes it's a band-aid, sometimes something just clicks and it works, but it's you often don't get the chance to reflect and look back and go, okay, why did that work? How do I make that repeatable? Even though everyone tells you that they do, I think the reality is always something different. Um, so that's for me, definitely on, on the on the, the grow up stage, this kind of difference that you're bringing. They still need to have the hunger for the startup because you're not quite established, but suddenly you're looking more around the experience on the CV. Um, when you're into to the, to the kind of scale up stage, you know, again, you're probably looking at people that are going to have a, a bit more experience, but you also know what each role within the business requires. So if I apply that to like my sales team, for example, when we'd built a successful sales academy, which is kind of like our, our junior sales, if you like, uh, heavily focused around booking the appointments and they move into like an inside sales role, we knew what the skill sets were, what the behavioral um, elements were to that role. And we were able to create very, very clear matrices for when we were running interview processes of what we needed. So the whole process became much easier because you didn't need now, one of the founders or one of the senior leaders in the business to run the interview would build something that we knew, okay, we know when we get this kind of scoring matrix and these kind of answers, that person has, is more likely to be successful. Whereas previously, you're kind of, you need like your founders and your senior leadership team to run most interviews because they've always run the hiring process and they just have this gut call of what will work and what won't work. So I think you're at that scale-up stage. It's an element across all the things you've learned in the first two phases. But the key to it is at a scale-up stage, everything should be documented so that any one of the people in your business could hire the right person into a role rather than being dependent on your leadership team. Yeah, good good examples there, Neil, of uh, 
of, of the different characteristics needed at, uh, at each of those stages. Good. So during your time at Huddle, you actually developed a sales academy within the business. So tell us a little more about, about that, what inspired you to do, uh, to, to do that, to set up that sales academy. Yeah, definitely. There was quite a twofold to it, actually. One was, uh, again, I was lucky to work for, you know, three three very good managers and uh, Charlie Blake Thomas, Matt Wise, and then Leslie Young, who's still one of my mentors now uh, in San Francisco. And when we were in the in the UK, because I'd come through an academy process myself under uh, CapScan, I'd seen that people that move from an academy into an account management new business sales role always ramped much faster than any of the external hires. They also tended to be the people that were more passionate around the product and the business. Um, and they had a sense of loyalty, a sense of care to doing the right thing. You know, they kind of put the business first and then they put the, you know, the customers and then last it was kind of about their payback. Not to say they didn't chase the dollar, you know, all, all good sales guys do. But they had a different approach to their, to their work. Um, and I, I felt that myself having come through an academy. So I, I felt the best way to scale Huddle. Bearing in mind, we were a tech company that, you know, we gave out the T-shirts with the logos and all those things that you would expect. The best way to build that loyalty, that trust, and from a practical point of view, to reduce hiring costs uh, and increase the success rates of people on ramp was to invest in the sales academy. Um, and in return, the tenure of those people was always significantly longer than when I was trying to pull people out of other organizations. So there's a couple of elements, both practical and personal for me, as to why, you know, we built this uh, academy at, at huddle but we've done a similar thing at pecan it was one of the first things that you know we put in place here when we wanted to build out the sales team was let's, let's build an academy for you know top talent and let's make pecan a name that's recognized as taking you know great grads and turn them into rock star sales people uh, in our business i'm sure that uh, is effective not only at, uh, at developing and training people once they've joined the team but also in attracting talent to the team if you have this sales academy set up that must be motivating uh, uh, potential employees to to get involved with pecom definitely and i think it's, it's, it's always a nice message across the company when they see that the leadership and the management team you know believe in finding ways to promote people internally where, where it's right for the organization and i think again that's where that really interesting phase of grow up comes in because there's always a where you need to bring in external experts but it does, doesn't mean that you can't still build a culture where you want people to develop and learn and step into roles. Um, because again, you talked about the star and me having this opportunity to go to San Francisco, there would definitely been a, uh, a potentially on paper, a safer bet than me to go and set that company up with Andy. Um, but the fact that I've kind of gone through this two year journey and helped raise the money with, with Huddle, is very passionate around the product, meant that when I spoke to people on the phone around it, they would buy into me as much as what they would buy into what we were trying to do. And I think that's another reason why these academies, and it doesn't just have to be across the sales team. We do it with our data science team here. We do it with our customer success team and our developers. Um, you build trust with both customers and also internal trust across your company by developing an internal promotion plan. Okay. I didn't realize that. So you've actually got a number of academies for different functions, different skill sets within Pecon. Yeah, of course, the business. I mean, being an engagement uh, product and platform, we have to kind of live and breathe this, as you'd expect, and we want to. Um, but yeah, we have an academy set up across the whole organization based on all the different functions. Um, so we have the senior uh, people that are running those teams. 
Uh, and then we recruit from different uh, universities across the country, people that are looking to get involved in, in the startup scene um, and now the grow up stage of organizations uh, and try and bring them on a journey with us so that they become you know, part of the furniture within the organization. Like I said, in return, I think for that investment that you make as a, as a management team and as a business, you get so much more in return from that person, um, both in terms of the quality of their work, but their commitment to do the right thing uh, to grow the organization and not just for their own you know weekend beers absolutely makes makes a lot of sense uh, taking you outside the world of tech and startups and academies for a few moments if you weren't a chief revenue officer what other profession would you love to try oh gosh well i well i always wanted to be a professional rugby player but i was never as good as what my uh, my mom and dad told me i was so <laughs> i figured that one out pretty quickly <laughs> um I'd, I'd, I'd love to, my, my passion is um, is definitely still in, in, in sport. Um, so I would love to do something where I think if I wasn't in the, in the in the tech startup world now, something where you're helping kids in schools. I think one of the, the things for me is I don't think sports treated seriously in a lot of schools now, especially in public schools, um, the state schools in, in, in the UK. And I've got a few friends that have stayed in that industry and are kind of battling to get you know things like like rugby still sport in in state schools and not everyone you know just having one hour of PE a week they think that the life skills that you learn from you know playing in sports winning and losing um, and winning and losing as a team gear you up much much more for the you know whatever job you or whatever profession you then choose to move into everything is about winning as a team it's damn so hard to do anything on your own than what it is to do it with with other people so I'd love to get back into something like that at some point uh, later on in the career yeah, or maybe maybe combine your uh, two passions. You could uh, set up a sports tech venture um, once uh, once peak on has um, has achieved uh, its scale up successes exited, and you're ready for your next adventure. Definitely, that would be, that would be the uh, the next dream. The next dream. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the future and I kind of gave, gave you a, a one possible vision there but tell us about the next three years for you and the roadmap for uh, scaling or continuing to scale PECON globally yeah it's, I mean, it's a really really exciting time for us and I think it's one of the I said it's one of the guys when they join here you know the, the opportunities that present themselves when you when you get into an organization that, that genuinely has a great product market fit with a with a great team um are on parallel to anything else and last year we started in january we were kind of 22 people uh in shared offices both in london and in copenhagen uh and we ended the year with 72 people uh with uh, a shared office in berlin but then our our own offices in copenhagen and london uh and with a uh, an office out in the us in rally through one of our partners personified so it's been an amazing year and this year is like i said it's pushing on with the grow up stage um <clears throat> we are a leader now in both the the nordics and the, and the uk market for employee engagement and we need to talk with the lessons i talked to around you know how do we scale now in two two different regions both in in, in the dac market uh, but more excitingly we'll be taking peak on uh, properly out to the us again this year so as so for me personally this is a this is a big one having kind of done it a couple of times with huddle and probably not done it as successfully as, uh, as you kind of dream of doing it. Um, <laughs> I'm very excited around the opportunity that we'll now have here at PECON to, to go and take employee engagement to the next level in uh, in America. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, US journey is going to be really uh, exciting. And uh, and this time you're 
you get it right first time with all those uh, lessons you've learned from uh, from your time at Huddle. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your insights, your humility, which came across loud and clear, and also for allowing me to uh, borrow your phrase and uh, rename my podcast. Uh, so from now on, will be the startup grow up scale up podcast uh, um so uh, wishing <laughs> you and wishing you and peak on a, a wonderful uh, um 2018 and look forward to hearing how you guys and girls do um in in the states cool thanks so much gary an absolute pleasure to be on it it's a, it's a really great podcast i think uh, a lot of people will be very interested in, in the topics you're putting forward and i'll certainly be listening myself this episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high impact senior talent.